Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And welcome to Rule of Three, a podcast about comedy. I'm Joel Morris. I'm Jason Hazley. And as usual, we're joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love. By taking it apart, maybe we'll learn something about how comedy works, or we'll just quote bits from it and giggle until we're finished. Both approaches are valid. Our special guest today is Ed Morris. Hello, Ed. Hello. Ed is a comedy producer with enormous experience, probably best known as the person who greets people and does the faders and fiddles on John Finnemore's Souvenir programme, but also does Any Stupid Questions with Daniel Ward, uh, which is a terrific podcast, and has just finished doing uh, Empire with Annie Zaltzman. But yeah, Ed's credits are very, very long, but he's a very experienced producer, particularly in the field of audio and sound and ears. I, I haven't produced ears. That's no. they, they're that's, your that's, idea. That's equipment that comes as standard. <laughs> hey, can I go in on not even on the ground floor here? What does a producer do? Because the joke you just made a joke about him playing with the faders, and the usual joke is, "Oh, it books taxis, yeah." And as another producer said to me recently, "I've never booked a taxi in my entire fucking career." That's a line producer. How dare you? <laughs> uh, well, in radio, that would be a broadcast assistant or production coordinator. Uh, a story about my mum, if you like. Uh, when I phoned her up to tell her that I'd got a job as a trainee producer in two thousand and two, and she said, "Oh, so is it? Do you have to come up with the ideas?" And you go, well, you know, sometimes, but more mainly it's people come to me with script and ideas. and like, Right, so you don't come up with the ideas. You don't write it? No. And you're not in it? No. Right, do you do the actual recording? No. Right, <laughs> do, you, do you edit it afterwards? No, no, there's someone else who does that. So a producer doesn't actually do anything. <laughs> <laughs> 
And she's not entirely wrong. There is no <laughs> there is no manifest skill that you need. Um, it's all judgment because what the producer is is the that's person. A, that's a bloody good point, actually. That is a really good point. That producers don't do anything. Yeah. No, no, uh, the judgment thing. Yeah. It's, well, it's judgment. Yeah. I mean, the the way I sort of justify what is essentially a non-job to myself is it's your judgment to combine that writer with that cast or you know booking engineers and stuff to record choosing you choose the team um, because the producer is the person who's responsible for the production from genesis to delivery yeah. um, so when radio 4 they hand over a credit card loaded with the money you've agreed ten thousand pounds a radio 4 program roughly um and then you get to spend that and you're the person they give the credit card to and then you have to give it back with whatever's left on it at the end of the production. There should be a game like the Football Manager programmes where you can be a radio producer <laughs> and you can decide who to buy. I'm transferring John Finnemore yeah. over for this season. It'd be amazing. You can get Nicholas Parsons on free. <laughs> but it's, it's odd because I think everyone understands, when you say producer, if you say music producer, because of people like George Martin mm. and Trevor Horn and Pete Waterman, everyone goes, oh yeah, they don't sing on the songs, but I know what they do. And it's an exactly equivalent role with radio production, as in you're involved in the assembly of the finished product and delivery of it but people seem to not understand what that is with comedy or drama well they do understand it with music well i think also in radio uh, producing encompasses a lot of roles in tv you can list easily everyone who works on an episode of souvenir program uh, you can count them on your hands but the producer is also the script editor and is also the director Yes. And is also on the night of the recording, if you've seen uh, a radio recording, the producer comes out first and tells you where the fire exits are because we're legally the floor manager. And if there's <laughs> a fire and someone burns to death, it's not the BBC that gets sued, it's the producer because you're legally, right? you're legally responsible. Holy you're also shit. the warm-up guy. Yeah, you're the warm-up guy. Well, yes. some producers don't do that. I'm a massive show-off, hence being here. I think yeah. I, there are a lot of people who are really good at it. And you see a good producer come on and do that thing and you realise, oh, you're doing what on TV would be Ted Robbins coming on and getting the audience to just do some chuckles and to walk warm up and to loosen up and and you see a producer who uh, is either nervous or anxious about that or isn't a massive show up isn't a, a frustrated stand-up Hello. and there's a there's a certain <laughs> amount of of the audience are a bit nervous because the first person they've seen didn't appear to be comfortable on stage i think the mistake people some people make is that they don't answer audiences are very obedient if you tell them this is amazing and you're going to have a great time they will probably do that most but i think people are wary of the tyranny of high expectations. You say it's going to be brilliant and the funniest thing you've ever seen, and what they're worried about is everyone goes, all right, that good, is it? Which actually socially happens and probably happens a little bit with broadcast, but the producer bit isn't for broadcast. And you're standing in front of... like I've never been nervous doing a a, a warm-up because in the back of my head, I know that all those people chose to be there they knew what the show was my legal responsibility i have to go out and tell them where the fire exits are and i have to tell them to switch off their phones because it interrupts recording but if i am one percent more entertaining than a like a security sign a safety sign <laughs> uh, if i'm one percent more entertaining than a health and safety pamphlet i am the best thing they've seen that night that's on and your, they're about to get something even better that's on yeah. the post of your edinburgh show this year isn't it yeah, so yeah, one percent um, more entertaining than the no. toilet sign at least at yeah. least one <laughs> percent and in fact yeah so all through the um the process there is an element of selling it i mean you have to sell the programs to radio 4 you have to persuade a commissioning editor or um you know not radio 4 but audible or panoply or spotify or whoever you have to persuade someone with money to give you Money. Some of it. Yeah. <laughs> if someone went on Dragon's Den and went, well, we think this business might be shit, but we're going to give it a go. And then someone comes on and goes, this is the best idea in the world. 
there's there's something about confidence that yeah. transfers. If they look confident, you have to be good as well. And the, we, we, we fr- all know people. Hey, let's name the people who are really good at selling stuff but can't make shit. But it's, it's, <laughs> I remember Darren Brown said once, so the phrase confidence... Darren Brown, that's a bold call. <laughs> Darren Brown said that the, the phrase confidence trick exists because confidence is a trick. The, the two go together. As in, you, yeah. the people who seem confident very often are just pretending to be confident and then become confident because everyone else got swept up in it. Is There's a certain amount, even the most person, the person who believes in something the most, still themselves up a bit to say this is great and uh, us as writers it helps in the room when you sell the idea to the producer or the, your fellow writers on a team that you're confident in your idea and the first thing you should do is not undersell yourself because as you said no one hears that bit they hear the result they hear the, the show that goes out they don't hear the ballyhoo at the beginning the roll up roll up they get snipped off and all you hear is the effect it's had on the audience which is that they feel they've not wasted their evening they've been made fools of yeah and to your point about audiences being obedient um one of the one of the most striking things I ever read about audiences was written by Dennis Potter, and he said an audience is a conspiracy, and I thought that's a really good way of thinking yeah. of it. Actually, basically, they've all got to go along with this, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what's interesting about talking about an audience as a conspiracy is this brings us brilliantly and unexpectedly to the object you brought in, which is a non-audience radio show. Yes, um, that is probably the ultimate example of an audience as a conspiracy, but one who aren't audible actually on the show. Because it's probably the definitive cult radio show where immediately everyone who heard it went, oh, can I join this club? adore Hitchhiker's Guide I think it's it's sort of so uncontroversial it's like a thing I keep saying um, to people like Eddie Robson uh, who's a big Beatles fan I'm not a fan of the Beatles because I actually can't conceive of the Beatles not existing so I've always said liking the Beatles to me would be like liking shoes <laughs> or liking air. I'm a it's big like, passionate yeah. fan of yellow. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't really make any sense. They are just part of it. But Hitchhiker's Guide, we listened to, we had on tape. I think my brother, my eldest brother, taped it um, when it went out. But we also had Goon Show, uh, tapes of that and Round the Horn. Yeah. Um, we had all these things. So I can conceive of a pre-Hitchhiker's world, because I'd heard in the Goon Show, which was, you know, actors and the sound effects table and the band in yep. front of an audience in the Paris, probably, Paris Radio Theatre, and then this, which doesn't sound like that. It no. doesn't sound like a comedy, and yet it's one of the funniest pieces of writing in history. Yeah. Are you saying that you originally made the Earth? Oh, yes. Did you ever go to a place, I think it's called Norway? What? No, no, I didn't. Did it? That was one of mine. Won an award, you know. Lovely, crinkly edges. I will say, I also produced some remakes of Hancock's Half Hour. Um, it was to coincide with the 60th anniversary, and there were some some episodes have been lost, and we, we um, recreated them. And that really rammed home that the toolkit for making radio comedy has not changed since 1954. Right. Yeah, It really true, hasn't. Yeah. What you have to play with, as a listening experience, I mean, um, as a listener, all you hear are voices, sound effects, music, silence, and sometimes audience laughter. Yeah. yeah. And all any producer has to give 
to the audience are those five things and sometimes it's four things so how are you going to put that together in a way that's never been done before is a very very hard challenge and hitchhikers did it if i asked you where the hell we were would i regret it we're safe oh good we're in a small galley cabin in one of the spaceships of the vogon constructor fleet ah this is obviously some strange usage of the word safe that i wasn't previously aware of i'll have a look for the light all right how did we get here we hitched a lift there's something we could probably all talk about. We've all tried to make stuff that doesn't sound like radio. And the, the, the weight against it is that radio works really well when it sounds like radio because people are used to listening to it. What Douglas Adams was asking is something which is being asked again now, which is if your audience changes the way they listen to it, and I, like you, listen to this on cassette of a friend, and I listen to it on headphones, a very 1977 mm. to 1980 way of listening, suddenly I wasn't in an audience. I wasn't in a room full of people. And also in the kitchen, listening to the Now Show or the news quiz with a roar of laughter, a communal sound of where Radio 4 is normally listened to. I was listening on headphones, on my own, like a rock record. And I was in a space where if I'd heard an audience laughing to this, I'd have gone, where have you come from? Piss off. I'm listening to this. It was a private (laughs) thing. And that's what's happening now with podcasts, is that people are listening on their own. So you can be explicit. You can talk about things you wouldn't talk about on a radio show without fear of embarrassment. The, the, the difference between playing something to an audience and then expecting it to come out of a speaker in a public space, which is what radio mainly is, mm. there's a set of rules that, that work very well with that. But if you're saying now we're delivering to headphones, which I think is the audience for this was people. When you're talking about building a conspiracy, especially with something which is an inbuilt cult thing, sci-fi, a bit nerdy, very wordy, very ideas-based, you're building a cult. And the way to do that is one person at a time and then word of mouth. And the thing about this show that is just dynamite is it goes into one person's ears, they tell someone else, like the ring, you pass the tape on to someone else and it infects. It's a viral pyramid scheme. And sooner or later you turn around and there's loads of people behind you and what happened with this show when it went out is it went out through the old radio waves, people taped it and listened to it. And this got repeated two weeks after it finished because people said, can we hear it again? And that is the sign you've got a cult. I'm confused. Here, have a look at this. What is it? The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's a sort of electronic book. It'll tell you everything you want to know. That's its job. I like the cover. Don't panic. It's the first helpful or intelligible thing anybody said to me all day. That's why it sells so well. Hitchhikers was the first comedy to be broadcast in stereo because of the work of Paddy Kingsland and Alec Hale-Monroe and the radio... Uh, Alec Hale-Monroe was the sound engineer, Paddy Kingsland and the radiophonic workshop put all that amazing sound effects so much which uh, i was at a talk that steve punt was giving about radio comedy and he was like it was the first time radio comedy was cool because you listen to it alone in your bedroom on headphones the way you listen to an eagles record or um, a pink floyd record and being able to get into people's ears like that i mean it wasn't the first non-audience comedy and it wasn't the first you know, probably wasn't the first sci-fi comedy, but it was the first thing to go, why don't we play around? I mean, what is the point? Nutrition and pleasurable sense data. Share and enjoy. Listen, you stupid machine, it tastes filthy. Here, take this cup back. If you have enjoyed the experience of this drink, why not share it with your friends? Because I want to keep them. If you were going to make this again, the way to make it again is to make it 
like a classics adaptation because it is set in 1978. Mm. Like 1984 is set in 1948. It's all about austerity. And What's great about this is it is observational comedy mm. about living in Islington, aged sort of mid-20s to 30s, dealing with digital watches and looking at the world in a slightly bemused way. And the reason it works so beautifully for a headphone audience and for a single person listening is you're inside Douglas Adams's head. It is mainly set mm. in Douglas Adams's head. And the big mistake that people make when they adapt this is they think it's set in space and they make it futuristic or they make it contemporary or they, the film did it, made it look a bit like Apple had made it, which is fair enough because Douglas Adams liked Apple. Mm. I can see why they were thinking that. But you look at it and you go, no, it's inside his head in 1978 and you're invited in. And the worldview that's inside that head is absolutely borderline unemployable to write for anyone else. He legendarily, and we're an honourable team here, couldn't get any sketches onto Weekending, the open-door sketch show, like we couldn't, and like Richard Curtis couldn't. It's an honourable team. But he couldn't get on because that world is in his head. And he said to you, do you want to join me inside my head and look at the world through my eyes? And it has that in common with Lewis Carroll. It's an unadaptable mm. world because it's set inside a man's head and it follows the rules of logic and internal logic and... And, and, and viewpoint but it doesn't necessarily follow the rules of narrative or character yeah. as much it is just saying welcome to my head and, and my head is in stereo and, and you be inside look through my eyes and there are some glaring inconsistencies well, the fact that well, the fact that Arthur's house is being knocked down and uh, he didn't know about it, and no one knew about it because they didn't tell anyone, and the sign was at the bottom of the stairs in a cupboard uh, behind a sign that said "Beware of the Leopard." But there's also a protest at the opening ceremony. Oh uh, yeah, which gets deleted. It, it's notably, if you listen to that first episode of Hitchhiker. It's that bit where Joe Kendall, who was in the oh, Footlights reviews, comes on and does Lady Muck Cottington or something. Yeah, she does a big speech, and it's <clears throat> it's really in the key of radio sketch. Yeah, and yeah. you go, this can be lifted out, and he it doesn't need it. Way outstays its welcome. She's isn't supposed it, to be an echo of the voice of the Vogon destructor thing, and you go, you don't need that because the joke works perfectly yeah. as it is, and you can hear it well, the straining at the limits of he's being a well-behaved Radio Four writer at that point. We need, we need a sort of little character to say this is the council. Yeah, that's what you'd have, but she can just disappear. There's so. also the one line. Listening it, listen to it today. Um, how do you feel? Like a military academy. Bits of me keep passing out. <laughs> that's that's a radio gag, isn't it? He's doing whereas it. Whereas compared, to, whereas compared to what's so unpleasant about being drunk, you ask a glass of water. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's genius. That is. Co- you get the feeling that he has been burned a lot by rejection. And he's mm. dropping in lines because he's going, is this a comedy? Because it might not be. It might just be a piece of whimsy. And he's dropping them to go, don't worry. So pair of hands. There's no audience there. So I've got to make sure that when you do a little joke count, you can tick. You can say, there's a military academy line. There's someone being a woman from the council. It's all in there. Don't worry. They're the last surviving handrails of old comedy they've left in. And you can lift them out because once yeah. people are in, they're in. In the script book, there was lots of notes from Jeffrey Perkins uh, that I suspect a lot of it, there wasn't time to rewrite it. Yeah. Because the reason Jeff, um, the reason Douglas Adams didn't get anything to weekending is he, never, he couldn't deliver on time. <laughs> Everyone knew he was the best writer. Yeah. But if you're told, here's the story about Mrs. Thatcher, or here's the story, well, it would be the 70s, wouldn't it? So mm. here's the story about Ted Heath or whoever. Um, 
here. Bardem yeah. And they've done this funny thing. Could someone do a sketch that starts with, you wanted to see me, Prime Minister? Um, and ends with... Uh, just like the general protection grant, yeah. uh, he couldn't do that. The, it's really the, odd not being able to hit, hit, not hitting the deadline for week ending when the deadline's in the name of the show. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what's willfully his, what's ignoring his famous, your What's brief. his famous quote about deadlines? I love, Adams. I love deadlines. I love the whooshing sound they make when they go past. That's it. But also, um, Jeffrey Perkins says in the uh, in the uh, script book, Douglas Adams is the only writer he'd ever met who could write backwards because he could start a day with ten pages of a script and end it with five. <laughs> I heard an explanation for this. It's because he was working on a manual typewriter. And I think he was one of the first big adopters of word processing software. In fact, I think the end of the second series, he actually credits, was written on a digital writing system. <laughs> he shows off about his gadget because he's got a word processor. And at the beginning, he'd look at a page, see something wrong with it, rip the page out and start again from the top. So it's possible for a whole page to become three quarters of a page to become half a page, to become two perfect lines, because yeah. he'd just throw it away. It's quite a nice insight into how long ago these were written, that he could make the thing shorter just by the mechanics of not having a word processor. Yeah, but also that I think it just speaks to the brilliant economy of writing, just so reduced. Yeah, the perfect I, remember, I mean, looking at someone like today, Simon Munnery, yeah. who I think Simon must have tremendous difficulty filling an Edinburgh hour because other comedians can get an hour out of the differences between men and women. And Simon wrote the joke, sex, if you want it badly, that's how you'll get it. <laughs> <laughs> and what more do you need to say? Douglas Adams is a hugely important writer for me. I think he's the first... He's probably the first comedy writer I knew. Mm. I mean, it's interesting. He didn't get into Footlights. He did the Cambridge University Light Ent Sock and went and performed to board prisoners in Chelmsford Prison. I can't imagine anything, anything more hellish than imagining Douglas Adams doing light review material to prisoners. But yeah, he, <laughs> d he did that instead. It's, oh, God. But he's sort of... I'm still bitter that he's not a performer. He's a, just a writer. And I love the Pythons and the Goons and things. But they were all writer performers. There weren't many people when you thought of comedy writers, and I didn't know Galton and Simpson, I didn't know who wrote mm. other things. He was the first writer I knew who was just a backroom boy. And I think so he became like a, a, a totem for what a comedy writer was, as in someone who, who just wrote and talked about writing and didn't ever do interviews about what it was like to be on location places or to wear mm. different wigs or think up characters. He just talked about words. And I find that enormously inspiring as a kid. So I, start, I was listening to this for the first time in, in ages. I don't think I'd listened to the... I've read the books a lot. I've not listened to Hitchhiker in ages, and I thought, how are these jokes working? Was my first thought. Thing. What was it that made it work? And the closest I can get is that he's come from Python. They were the people he wanted to be in when he went to Cambridge. And, and he did write a couple of sketches for the fourth series of Monty Python, yeah. didn't he? he wrote, I think he co-wrote with Graham Chapman the one where the guy comes into the doctor's surgery clutching his stomach and with blood pouring out of him and the doctor <laughs> says, oh, and, what, and what, uh, what can I do for you? He says, your, your secretary's just stabbed me in the stomach. <laughs> and he then pre proceeds to bleed to death all over this white Afghan rug while the doctor is practising his golf stroke. But yeah, he, so he did a few sketches and he sort of, he's got this Python influence, but it occurred to me the first time I thought what's happening with that it's not really Python because it's not got the same thing he has made a rod for his own back because he writes a Python sketch so he starts with the idea of a man's having his house demolished and then you pull out to reveal that the entire planet's being demolished and that's a real series four Python sketch like mm. it's bigger it's like narrative in it but you know, but that what would happen then is you'd cut away and he'd do a different sketch and it'd be set in, in, a, in a shop or something. And instead of doing that, he's gone, OK, I'll make a rob my own back. I'll do the full logical illogic of Python. And at the end of it, we won't go and now for something completely different. 
will stay there and see what happens to those people if I logically then trap them in that sketch. And then there are consequences and characters develop by saying, okay, where do they go next? And he's got this system where the, the opening of the whole thing is a Python sketch. And then the next thing that happens when they go, because they are it's a picaresque, they go from planet to planet. You can go to a planet where everyone's evolved into birds. That's a sketch. But the links between them can't be Python's handbrake turns. Yeah. He has to work out logically what happens next. And being someone who is a Lewis Carroll logician and whose show appeals very much to mathematicians and logicians and things, he's managed to logically string together illogic in a way that I think only Lewis Carroll had done before. He traps himself with problems. And imagine yeah. he goes for a bath and a, and a drink and a beer and a play with his guitar until he solves how to get to the next thing with what seems to be logic. And again, the audience are half a beat behind. And by the time they've noticed, it didn't really work. And when he threw himself at the ground and missed or <laughs> he suddenly flew, he didn't crash. They, they're all tricks, but you're enjoying mm. the display. You describe it as like solving crossword clues. Yeah, that's what it feels like to me. It feels like he's setting himself problems and then solving them. Yeah. But doing it f with, with comedy. Yeah, he ends episodes not knowing how he's going to get out of it and then has to start again. And like, right, I've thrown them out of an airlock. Yeah. How to get out of that? All right, they've been next to this bank of computers that's blown up. Where, how do they survive the explosion? And of course, the first episode ends with the cliffhanger of uh, are they going to be nice about some bad poetry? Yes. <laughs> that's the, well, that's no, like a mock. It's the first, it's the first thrilling instalment, exciting instalment. It's, a, it's a mock Dick Barton yeah. peril thing. And he's doing mm. pastiche of peril. And actually, once he gets past doing pastiche peril, and he actually does real peril, they're thrown out of an airlock and mm. there's something really at stake. He finds in that something which is a phrase I've used ever since I read it in the footnotes of that Hitchhiker's book, which he uses judo logic. And judo logic is one of my favourite Douglas Adams writing techniques, which is when you set yourself an, an insurmountable problem, you use the, the weight of your opponent against them. And the perfect example is they're thrown out of an airlock. The problem is it is incredibly improbable that the characters will survive. So the solution is that a spaceship powered by very low levels of probability will rescue them. Yeah. <laughs> That's such a brilliant bit. Suddenly the opponent's on the mat and you've pinned yeah. it. And this is just dynamite. And all the way through, the answer is, actually, it wasn't really this universe. Actually, that didn't happen. Actually, it was someone else. They're, they're constantly masks are being pulled off and tricks are being, being played quite, sometimes with bravura, Elan, and sometimes quite crudely. But the, you're enjoying the fact he's written himself into a corner. Can he get free? Yeah. And that probably relates to something that I think is very true about this series, is the hero of it. It's sort of Arthur Dent. Yeah. But the hero of it, actually, a book. And it's the book, Hitchhikers, yeah. and the book, The Story You're Being Told, by Douglas Adams, The Tall Tale. Can the tall tale survive? And I noticed that at the end of every one of these series, which I hadn't noticed as a kid... The last shot you see or the last mm. thing you hear about, the last bit of line, is never Arthur Dent or Four Prefect. It's always The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That's what's at stake. It Has he thrown the book in the river? Will Can the book survive? Because mm. you as a listener are just listening to the adventures of this book. And in two million years, bang, it gets destroyed by the Vogons. What a life for a young planet to look forward to. Well... Better than some, I read of one planet off in the seventh dimension that got used as a ball in a game of intergalactic bar billiards. Got potted straight into a black hole, killed 10 billion people. Mm, total madness. Yeah, only scored 30 points too. Where did you read that? Mm, book. Which book was that? Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, that thing. I see trees of green. 
In the last episode of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Peter Jones was the book. Simon I think it's worth talking about as well the um, importance of Peter Jones, uh, the yeah. narrator. Oh, not just Peter, a Peter Jonesy voice, famously. <laughs> they asked Michael Palin to do a Peter Jonesy voice and he didn't do it. Um, <laughs> and then they asked Peter Jones. Yeah, the importance of Peter Jones, uh, the narrator of someone. I didn't, so I didn't know Peter Jones from just a minute. Yeah. I just knew he just sounds authoritative. He, mm. you know, for better or worse, that is the sound of a reliable seventies, eighties BBC presenter yeah. saying, "Here are some very reasonable and using a very reasonable tone of voice." The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a truly remarkable book. The introduction starts like this: as he explains that space is big really big you just won't believe how vastly hugely mind-bogglingly big it is i mean you may think it's a long way down the street to the chemist but that's just peanuts to space listen and so on you know it's, <laughs> it's a ridiculous thing to say and it's a thing that as you talked about with um john on the episode about on the hour if you sound like a thing it's actually funny just to hear other things thrown in there, in, you know, thrown into the bucket. Well, there's a, there's um, a nice uh, tonal trick he does a lot, which is to use to use that BBC voice and the voice of a book. The great thing is, it's not Encyclopedia Galactica. It's not an authoritative voice. It's written by people like the young and unreliable Jeff McGiven. It's written by mm. people who don't know what they're doing. It's got that lovely freewheeling banjo playing Journey of the Sorcerer vibe to it. It's written by hippies. Yeah. So it's got the authoritative voice, which I assume is a synthesised robot voice of this thing, which sounds like Peter Jones. But it's got an immediate tonal mismatch with a voice that has baby talk and slang in it. That's just peanuts to space. Yeah. After a while, the star settles down a bit and it starts telling you things you actually need to know, like the fact that the fabulously beautiful planet Bethselemin is now so worried about the cumulative erosion caused by 10 million visiting tourists a year that any net imbalance between the amount you eat and the amount you excrete whilst on the planet is surgically removed from your body weight when you leave. So every time you go to the lavatory there, it's vitally important to get a receipt. It's always funny to hear grown-ups talk like kids. You, you sassed that hoopy fraud, fraud prefect. <laughs> Worth knowing that by the time I heard this, the fraud prefect was a dim and distant memory, so I did not get that joke. <laughs> a, a gag you find out. It's, a, it's the Reginald Maudlin of references. <laughs> yeah. um, but also, it, it reminded me, I, I don't know if you've done Robert McKee's story course, mm -mm. but um, uh, it's three long days, and at the end of it, he shows you Casablanca and explains why Casablanca is a perfect film, frame by frame, scene by scene. And the, Could you not just watch Casablanca to come to that conclusion? I mean, that's certainly cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> certainly cheaper. Um, but the bit that I really took away from that is why, he asked the question, why does Casablanca start with that Pathé newsreel, explaining that the only way to, to get out of Europe during the war is through Morocco, Casablanca? Um, why doesn't he have someone reveal that in the story? And the answer is because it's not true. It's, it wasn't true. It, that's not. I mean, that's just ridiculous. If you, it's not in Europe. How could you? What are you talking about? But if you don't believe that, the whole thing falls apart. And it doesn't wow. matter. So, yeah. what's the most believable thing? They mocked up some Pathé newsreel. They, you know, it's yeah. War of the Worlds. It's you know, you've got to get people to invest in that. And with ridiculous sci-fi, you have to make people somehow care about it or feel like it matters but and it's uh, eddie and i always used to refer to it as the clunk you, yeah. you have to like make sure it's the th it's the pathé newsreel at the start of casablanca it is 
The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is an incredible book. Yeah. It's the thing you have to give the audience for everything else to make sense. <laughs> Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Look at this door. All the doors in this spacecraft have a cheerful and sunny disposition. It is their pleasure to open for you and their satisfaction to close again with the knowledge of a job well done. Hateful, isn't it? Come on. I've been ordered to take you up to the bridge. Talking the serious cybernetics corporation gag, the the one that that runs hitchhikers. Mm. They've got real people, per, genuine people, personalities. Yeah, which gives you Marvin and Eddie and Doors and Team yeah. Machines that argue with you. And I thought that's a great gag. And I've seen that done again and again since. Mm. And I always credit it to Douglas Adams. And then it just occurred to me this morning, Dark Star. John Carpenter's Dark Star. Yeah, yeah. Where it ends with the, the one of the hippie uh, astronauts. It's the, the dry run for Alien, written by Dan O'Bannon. But it ends up with one of them arguing with a bomb. And the bomb goes, hi there! And I'm like, oh! And that's a few years before Hitchhiker. And it's the kind of movie, I guess, hmm. someone like Douglas Adams would have seen. And I, I think that's there's a lot of Hitchhiker in Dark Star. And it's one of the few sci-fi comedies before that's got that kind of freewheeling Zaphod Bieber, Roxy, hippies in space, arguing with with computers that haven't been given a howl's calm dispassionate yeah. voice though obviously if you if you'd seen 2001 and that calm dispassionate voice the first joke mm. you'd do is what's the other voice Hal could have yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's equally as annoying will all sorts of totally amazing things happen when the heart of gold arrives on the planet Brontitor find out in the next strangely incomprehensible episode of the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy 
It always opens with a book. Yeah. And the book opens not only with Peter Jones saying, hello, I'm from the BBC. He then says, Mega Dodo Publishing Corporation, and it's all Zani Whoop. And there's all these words that are too long for you to understand that sound funny in his voice because mm. he's been almost at gunpoint forced to join in the fun. But there are also signals to that audience that this is this is yours. This is like an audience who like those silly over-the-top sci-fi names uh, are being told, it's okay, we're, we're aware of the silliness, but we're, we've driven them to a point where it's Slarty Bart Fast. The, the names are just ludicrous. We know the original signals. name for Slarty Bart Fast. <laughs> yes. Yeah, this one? Yes. <laughs> Farty Fuckballs. <laughs> Which... You can write in such a way that it's broadcastable, but you can't say it in such a way that it's broad. P H A R T Y. I often think with, with with sort of little signifiers like there are robots in it. There's there's a these these names are too long and silly, and they've got too many Z's in them. It's a way of saying, look, we're we're all in this gang. You're, you, this is a little signifier to say we're part of a tribe. This is a club. Join in. You're probably going to like this. Your brain probably works like mine. You've read these books. There's that wonderful a page in the not 1982 or 1983 book which is the science fiction book club that we I don't know but we're assuming is Douglas Adams and John Lloyd mucking about and it shows an absolute mastery of understanding the cliches of science fiction um, there was it a uh, Space soldiers mating with naked crumpet with no vowels in their names by E E E E Doc Hamburger, <laughs> and, it's, it's, it, and that's the one that's got the, the immortal Doctor Who and the shreddies of Nabisco, and it, every bit of it is just perfect, and, and it, it shows a familiarity with it. But also, it's throwing out a little uh, thing to an audience. And I read that in the Notebook when I was eleven or twelve, and had been looking through the science fiction spinner at the library. Mm. And I, went, I get this joke. This is a joke for me. These are jokes for my people who've read Kurt Vonnegut and things, and they're little. Um, flags to say come and join the club and you're he's building an audience by saying one by one i find this funny and actually because there's no audience i can hear maybe only douglas adams finds it funny and only me at home on my headphones find it funny which is a lovely joke and the the, mm. the freak of nature that meant that radio 4 put out publicly something which feels like a private joke for a little club was why I think it appealed to people who like these I know there's a really good story from Simon Brett and I can't remember if I broadcast it in the Frequency of Laughter so go and listen to the Frequency of Laughter it's on the Radio yeah, it's 4 a very website very good series very um, good series but Simon Brett um, so it's, like I say everyone agreed that Douglas Adams was the best writer he could never hand anything on time so they said well I'll just give him his own show just write something use that brain to write something and they did Simon made the Hitchhiker's, Hitchhiker's pilot and then they did a thing called Programme Review which was um, their head of department which was Con Mahoney at the time Conmani and lots of senior producers um, like Teddy Taylor like people who'd had 20 million listeners in yeah. the 60, 50s and 60s people who'd made Journey into Space you know, sort of heroic figures of uh, the, the golden age of Radio Lightent and um, he had to play the reel to reel to this gathering of August veterans <laughs> and no one laughed oh boy at all no one laughed for. I think the pilot is twenty nine minutes long. Not no even the military laughed. academy joke. That's in there for them. Yeah. Um, no well, one laughed. as much and sex the appeal end, as a road traffic accident or whatever. That was well, there for them as well, wasn't it? I think you know. There's a page. You should send that into the Reader's Digest. They've got a page for people like you. That's okay. <laughs> um, and at the end, Con Mahoney turned to Simon Brett and said, "Simon, tell me the truth. Be honest. Is this funny?" And Simon said, I promise you, Con, it's really funny. And he said, well, go and make a series then. Wow. 
That's because that was the days before the you had you to account it. for what you spent. <laughs> I mean, you know, but they trusted Simon's instincts. I mean, this was, I mean, they were aware that the department, the radio comedy department had got old. Yeah. They were aware that yeah. everyone there was in their 50s. Yeah. So they needed people, I think late 40s, early 50s. And they made a concerted push to go back to, you know, there wasn't a stand-up comedy circuit in 1975. So they went back to Cambridge University and Oxford Review, and, you know, Footlights, and that, that's where you can find people who've been practising writing comedy and performing comedy every week for three years. And so that's why uh, Radio Comedy flooded with Oxbridge graduates from 1975 onwards. Yeah. It's because they went, shit, no one here is young. Yeah. But we can't just hire kids off the street because we still need stuff to get made. Who's good at comedy? And the only way they could find someone who'd proven they were good at comedy was at those university reviews. Well, at the time, that was, I mean, before you had alternative comedy in the comedy store and things like that, that was effectively going, oh, we need to hire some new management trainees. Is there a management training course we can get them off? And that was basically footlights. Yeah. So you're, you're, yeah. you're getting people who basically have, have gone, Douglas Adams admitted that, he said he'd gone to university mainly to learn to do comedy because he wanted a job in comedy. And that certainly mm. seemed to be, it was the, the bit, it was like going to art college to do a foundation course because you want to become a commercial artist. You, yeah. You're learning the skills there and, and it does sort of make sense. It, it took a few years for it to get shaken up and, and other sources of trained comedians to turn up. Yeah. What this reminded me of um, anew is, apart from obviously Google's entire business plan, up to and including the destruction of the planet, I imagine, um, (laughs) what it it reminded me of um, was um, Reggie Perrin. I thought there's a frustrated man having to deal with municipal matters, and there's even a point where the uh, the the chief Vogon says something like, um, "I've worked very hard to get where I am today," and I went, "Oh God, I can hear CJ now." Yeah. There's some knobs in it. I, I wrote that down. I said, which, which which voices can I hear in this? And I said, "I can hear Vonnegut in the book, loads of Kurt Vonnegut, yeah, in the book. Yeah. and Vonnegut's ability to look at Earth and normal behaviour from an enormous height, as if he's in an orbiting spaceship. Hmm. That wonderful bit in Slaughterhouse Five where he watches a war backwards." And you go, if you viewed a war backwards, it would be the most poetic and terrible thing about all these young men being pulled back to life out of the ground and then all the metal being sucked out of them into special machines for sucking metal out of them and then the metal being slowly put through factories and put into the ground where it can't hurt anyone anymore. That's a very <laughs> Douglas Adams idea that you could watch time mm. going backwards. That's all very Vonnegut. And that, but that voice is contained completely in the book. The book takes sci-fi seriously. All the rest of it, all the rest of the characters are sketch characters. Mm. None of them take the sci-fi very seriously. All of them, for very different reasons, are not really involved. And they've got David Nobbs's voice, or they've got Graham Chapman's voice. I meant to say, when we were talking about Python, um, have you seen Out of the Trees? Yes. Yeah. yes. Which has Simon Jones picking a flower, and then someone tells him off, and then Peony it escalates. Severance. Uh, Peony, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then it uh, escalates and escalates, with more and more troops arriving until the world blows up. Oh, you admit that then? Admit? (laughs) Look, officer, don't try to flatter me. You won't get out of it that way. Get out of what? Calm down! Sorry, um, Out of the Trees, uh, if you haven't seen it, um, it was part of um, Dick Fiddy's Missing Believed Wipes series at the BFI, and it was a sketch show that um, a 
chronically alcoholic by this point, Graham Chapman and Douglas Adams made together, which has some brilliant stuff, some utterly unbroadcastable stuff, but was never seen, I think. Um, no. And it, was, uh, it, it predates starts, Hitchhikers with, yeah. um, by well, a couple it, of years. It starts with the words, than the universe, and then gets into a long argument about how you can't start a sentence with than, doesn't it? <laughs> so it's obviously very Douglas Adams, yeah. right from the And slightly off. down the pub drunk. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's got the original pilot for... The pilot idea of Hitchhikers was a series of sketches, half-hour-long sketches, that would end with, and then the world blows up. Yeah. And it was going to be called Till the End of the Earth or Till it's the End... It's called The Ends of the, the World or something, mm. was it? Yeah, like and then what you've got there, what we were talking about earlier on, which is you say, OK, well, that's 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 your Richard Curtis version, and that's your Four Weddings and a Funeral, it'll be a series of short stories, that's all I can write, I'm a sketch writer. And what Douglas Adams did was we got to the end and went, OK, well, we get to the end of the world. What if, God, as a stroke of genius, what if we went beyond the end of the world? Now, the end of the world is the ultimate Python sketch end. Bang! It is everyone exploding or a, a, a Spike Milligan, what do we do now? Walking off set. You have finished the thing. You would be excused stopping hmm. at that point and then going, and now? And he does the brilliant thing of going, well, what if I went beyond that? Adams talked about this a lot, said that if you look at the world from a, just step to the left and look at it from a different angle, then what we're doing looks insane. Uh, and I think that he does that. He goes, OK, well, from another angle, well, it's only the world that's ended. In the same way, it's only my house that got knocked down. What about the world? OK, well, there's a bigger universe out there. Take a step to the left, see what it looks like. Keep stepping away from the assumptions you're making. And in terms of me reading this as a kid or listening to it as a kid, that's an incredibly useful mental technique. A, for survival as a human being. But B, my God, that's how you write comedy. Take mm. a step slightly to the left. What does this look like if I step one inch to the left? Does this look like the behaviour of a government that knows what it's doing? Or just some children dressed up as people? It's the most basic thing you do. It's what you do at school where you go, what if my teachers are idiots? The logic of the Babelfish. Oh, proving that God, God doesn't exist. Yeah. I mean, it's actually, a proof that starts with God yeah. being there. <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful. Uh, now, it is such a bizarrely improbable coincidence that anything so mind-bogglingly useful could evolve purely by chance that some thinkers have chosen to see it as a final clinching proof of the non-existence of God. The argument goes something like this. I refuse to prove that I exist, says God. For proof denies faith, and without faith I'm nothing. But, said man, the Babelfish is a dead giveaway, isn't it? It proves you exist, and so therefore you don't. QED. Oh dear, says God, I hadn't thought of that, and promptly vanishes in a puff of logic. Can't remember which, um, which episode, which fit it's in, but the logic of the population of the universe being zero. Oh, God. Yeah. Because space is infinite, but there's a finite number of people, and infinity divided by any finite number is zero. Or so close to zero as makes no odds. So the population is zero. Oh, God. I think we've just done that. We've just written a new book for Philomena Kunk. And I did a chapter on triangles that I found myself caught in a Douglas Adams loop. And I was trying to prove there were a maximum of five triangles in the universe. <laughs> I did it by doing the internal angles of a triangle, then working out what the external angles of a triangle were and how many triangles that was possible to be. And the answer's five. <laughs> She's actually the... All- all, um, all, Phenomena Kunk is all the same thing as this. It's just parallax shift, isn't it? You just look at the world from a slightly different perspective and see, and then don't, and then take that as your mm. understanding of it. So we, so we wrote a bit about um, evolutionary psychology and what it can explain. And it can explain, for instance, that people who run to work do that because they're frightened of their houses. You know? <laughs> Hello.
in this, the, the fool character, the jester, is Peter Jones, who's in control of the book that's meant to calm you down. And the answer is, the world is run by lunatics. And mm. it's a theme that comes up again and again in Douglas Adams when they finally meet the man in control of the universe. It's that very calm Stephen Moore performance mm. as the man, the last person in the world who could be in charge of the universe is someone who wants to be in charge of the universe so it's a man with a cat in a shack who doesn't even know what he's doing yeah. and questions everything or uh, the, it Wonko the saying in one of the books the, the man who decided that everything outside his house is the asylum because everyone else <laughs> there is mad and so he turns his house inside out and lives it, it lives uh, outside the asylum in his house that idea that that the only sane person is the, is the fool is just a brilliant I mean, it's a brilliant comic idea but it's the book is that the book is the one that's mm. doing the it's wisecracking it's doing all the jokes mm. it's the character you want to come back it is the father Dougal it's the the wacky one the, I think it's the first one you come across that's your favourite so I heard the radio series so I prefer it to the obviously the TV series even my, my the films I I don't have anything against the film I think if you were trying to tell that story in the in an hour and forty minutes that, my my son really likes it that's what got him into Hitchhikers he saw that film and then wanted to hear the radio series right. and so um, but the in the books I I don't know possibly because there's much more prose but Arthur always came across as a bit more mild mannered and what I'd forgotten about Simon Jones's performance oh. is the fury the sort of and not and not just when he's shouting I'm going to boil you up and chop you up until until you've had enough um yeah, it calling but them the Visigoths, yeah. yes <laughs> but just the line um I'm game we'll see who rusts first he's yeah. not <laughs> he's not the same everyman no um he is not he doesn't deal with it placidly the person who knows what's going on is supposed to be Ford yeah, um, and I think uh, he he is a friend of ours. We should uh, declare an interest. We all know Jeff McGiven. We do. Um, yeah. We drink He's with a him lovely, regularly. lovely, He's a man. lovely man. And um, the swagger of this performance. Uh, <laughs> Douglas based it on him. They were friends at university. But the swagger of coming in and you've got you know, uh, I trust them to the end of the earth. How long's that? Twelve minutes. Just and I think what David Dixon he gave a very different performance on. TV. More alien. More alien, more sort of space cadet, sort of dissociated. Mm. And that meant, for me, because it's the same script, you have to, in comedy, draw a distinction between different and wrong. Yeah. So, see, he's not doing anything wrong. And no, he was doing it in, in uh, conjunction with the uh, director and the producer. Yeah, they all signed off on it. He's a good actor. But the missing that swagger, missing the confidence, someone goes, Yeah, I know the world's about to blow up. Yeah. And that line, I want to go home, you can't. Yeah. said definitively is funnier for me. Yes. Yeah. But when said sort of slightly airily by David Dixon, yeah. it's sort of, well, why that begs more questions for me. Yes. Um, and so as much as Simon Jones is not doing um, passive mild man, even Jeff McGiven, who is the character who knows what's going on, is unflustered because he knows he can get out. Um, he's not doing that either because he's got this little bit of swagger to him, it's mm. the knowledge. But then you actually realise the same person in the middle of this book is Peter Jones. Yeah. And he is authoritative and you trust him. And when he explains the Babel fish, oh, right, well, that's how that works. Well, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's sane, but also he's crazy. It's pure Carol. We're all mad here. It's, it's a beautiful British literary conceit that the person in charge is also mad. The, 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 the authority figures, the grown-ups are also mad. Is a brilliant basic comedy joke mm. um, and what you've got here as well for if you look at the lead characters you end up with a team of people one of the reasons they struggle to make it to a film and one of the reasons when he when Douglas Adams adapted some leftover Doctor Who scripts into the 
third book, Life of the Universe and Everything, which I, it's a cracking book. I really like that one, where they're trying to save the reality of time. And he found the problem was it was like herding cats. No one in this amazing sci-fi drama is interested in where the plot's going. No one will drive the story. No one wants to save the universe. So when he came to the third one, he had to invent Slarty Barfast working for an agency that wants to save the universe. Otherwise, everyone would just stay at home. There's nothing driving these characters on. And what's funny, I suppose, is to do a high space opera where occasionally they meet foot warriors and, and yeah. crazy people with guns and shooty and bang bang who are imported from sci-fi. And it's that's a great old Python joke. What if the people in your historical drama weren't interested in where King Arthur was going or the Holy Grail and had stuff of their own to bother with? Every one of the <laughs> heroes of this, that little team, of ragbag team, none of them are on the mission. They're all of them. They get to the Death Star and go, "What Death Star?" They don't care. It's they're not Cr- going. It's Rose and Cranston Guildenstern, yeah, isn't it? They're yeah. side characters yeah. while the universe is going on elsewhere, which is intrinsically comic and a great way of puncturing mm. the, uh, the. They're they're like the little characters on the side of a medieval manuscript who are getting on with yeah. their own stuff and doing poos out of windows. It's a real Python thing, and it's a fascination with the little people. And we're all the little people, so it's mm. immediately empathetic. But it's great to watch that engine work. And weirdly, the only person who can make the, the plot move on is the book. And yeah. the book is compl- entirely inert and passive. I mean, it's interesting how many, what I would refer to now as the rules of radio comedy, this breaks. Um, you're not supposed to do serials on Radio 4. And the logic for that is that um, if people, the research at the time showed that if people thought they had to have heard last week's to understand this week's, they just wouldn't bother. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and the other thing, uh, the other rule that it, I mean, it was sort of they recorded it in. I think they recorded it in the Paris Theatre, but with no audience. Yeah, sticking. They? Yeah, I think I it was, was on stage. Where they recorded they, it they, they, they bugger off to the captain's cabin after as the traditional now bulldozed, no longer existing hmm. place where all comedy ended up. Yeah. The pub around the corner from the Paris. Yeah, when they knocked down the Yorkshire Grey, that'll be another era gone. Um, the other rule that it breaks, like there's a thing in comedy where if something's successful, retrospectively the industry agrees that every single element was perfect. Yeah. And even listening to this, I can hear bits like, oh, I'd have tightened up that line. So when you look at something that is agreed to be a classic, it's imagining all the things that would stop it getting made. Yes. Mm. Um, Mrs. Brown's Boys, whatever you think of it, those actors would not get cast yeah. if you went through a casting process. But if you've been to see the live show, you see they work for the show, so there's no reason to change them. Yeah. yeah. And so if you just read this script not knowing anything about it, would you not go, Arthur Dent is entirely reactive. He doesn't push the plot forward, except by accident. Yes. When he says, I seem to be having this great difficulty with my lifestyle these days, that doesn't cause anything to happen. It's a rift in the time-space continuum that falls, those words fall through and start a war. Yeah. Then they realise that it was his fault and they march to, they combine forces, march on Earth, where due to a misunderstanding on the size of scale, they get swallowed by a dog. <laughs> he hasn't done anything. If you were to look at these characters under a sort of, you know, Save the Cat, under a Robert McKee, yeah. under those prisms, it's not perfect. It's not. But it's perfect for this yeah. because part of the point is that you say the, the universe is um, governed by idiots. I don't think the universe is governed. Yeah. I think it's arbitrary and random. And a lot of the plot, I mean, that maybe this is me projecting onto it because that suits Douglas Adams' style of going, uh, yeah, it's powered by a cup of tea. Arthur Dent, who, by the way, uh, you know, a detail not revealed in the radio series is that he's a radio producer. 
Is he? Is he? He's a radio producer. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, so, I mean, that's probably why it doesn't come up in the book. It's a very boring job um, to sort of not exciting like it. What is it? They're always architects in America, American yeah. stuff. Yeah, like yeah. Do you think um, he was based on anybody who was at the BBC at the time? Because uh, Douglas knew most of the cast. Yeah. Like, um, he said, he wrote somewhere that, um, I know there's a rumour going around that I based Marvin on Stephen Moore, who would used to come to parties and say, oh, what's the point of having fun and sit in the corner? Um, and I know there's a rumour because I started it. <laughs> um, and I know that Jeff has said that, you know, he based Ford on him. And it's, it's in the book, uh, in the script book, Jeffrey Perkins writes about how much of uh, Simon is in Arthur. So I don't know. I mean, it strikes me as slightly unlikely because there wouldn't have been anyone in the radio comedy department of that age. Maybe Griff, Griff Reese jones started as a radio producer. Um, isn't he just picking? Isn't he doing that classic comedy writers thing of thinking what jobs do people do who are What do grown ups? What do grown ups do? And the answer yeah. is the only job I've seen. But they they work in an office doing business office. Mm. Give Cynthia, it away. bring me those figures, will you? Yes, no, no. that's no one. That's no hello one. business. <laughs> yes, yes, that does sound good, but also not good enough. Do better business. <laughs> yeah, I think it's his version of doing that. He's picked the nearest person yeah. he knows who does a job that's more responsible than his, and it's radio producer. What made a profound impact on me about that story was simply the fact that things are not as they seem. I don't mean because there may be aliens wandering around or anything like that, but because we live in a world which we, which we accept at one level because it's very convenient for us and because we, uh, we make all sorts of comfortable assumptions. But when you look at it from some other point of view, it suddenly looks wildly and extremely different. And I think that is... That's an idea that's kind of obsessed me all the way through. What other point of view can you see this event from that suddenly makes it seem very, very strange and unusual and unreal when, when normally it appears to us to be a very normal event? I think one of the things that we should probably cover before we, we sort of come to an end is what well, the radio production of Hitchhiker meant when you heard it as a kid for your choice of career. There's something about Hitchhikers that says, do you want to be a backroom boy? Mm. I think, that, that especially the book, because if you've got uh, the script book, which I, I can ruffle in front of the microphone, if it helps. So I'll have to... I think this is my dad's copy. Cool. Um, An heirloom. Yeah, but then I moved, when I moved, I thought I'd lost it, so I had to buy him a new copy. I've got a, a sort of slightly less battered one. Um, and then uh, I found it. Uh, but I still took, I've still got, I've kept his and if I this copy, it's sort of like the, that and the, um, the the Bible his dad was given when he was ordained as a lay preacher. <laughs> um, but there's a thing, because it has, you know, by Douglas Adams, with an introduction by Jeffrey Perkins. Right, who's Jeffrey Perkins? I don't know who Jeffrey Perkins is. Mm. But because Douglas Adams, then you go, oh, that's the name at the end. And because Jeffrey writes about the process of making it in a way that, you know, I do liner notes for souvenir programs. Mm. But then you read Jeffrey's notes about what they had to do. And especially if you get the DVD of the TV series, there is a documentary, a making of. A making of the radio a series. A making of the radio series. Oh. Because they've got yeah, Jeffrey on film. Yeah. The, the bit I <laughs> stands out is him on the phone, standing next to his production manager, Lisa Brown, who he later married, and Alec Hale Monroe, who... Uh, was the sound engineer on my first ever radio program, which was four men and Mike stand up and felt like a terrific waste of his talent because <laughs> um, he like, he invented how Vogon sound mm. by wrapping sellotape around the tape head. Really? So that's how he did it, and it was irregularly just wrapped around the tape head with sellotape, so it recorded irregularly. Oh, and then when you play it back on a normal tape, it's a gurgly noise. It's warped. But he's on the phone to Douglas Adams saying, as I say, Douglas as if I ever met him. Um, 
talking about the um, share and enjoy song, which is, I think, 100,000 robots. In the script, it says 100,000 robots singing a semitone out of tune. <laughs> <laughs> Jeffrey Perkins on the phone saying, well, the trouble is we're, we're doubling it up, you know, sort of layering all the voices they recorded, and uh, it gets indistinguishable after 10. <laughs> And, you know, as a, as a producer now, I have no qualms in saying if John Finnamore writes a sketch that specifies 100,000 people do something, but it's indistinguishable after 10, it's going to be 10. Yeah. If, yeah. You know, and he's going, well, if we put them back in tune, you could probably have 100. Why are you having this conversation? <laughs> like this, I mean, the, that really speaks back to the times as well, where you didn't have to account for your time. You could spend six months making a radio series and no one would go, what are you doing? We, we edit Souvenir Programme in three days now. And I think if you're phoning your writer to check whether they would rather have their jokes heard or as written, <laughs> you have too much time to edit your programme. Um, but in the book, he explains what he does and the Involvement, And it's not... I don't think I grew up wanting to be a radio producer. I don't think I even thought it was something I would be allowed to do because I didn't go to Cambridge. I literally, my brother went to Cambridge, um, but he wasn't part of the comedy there. I think he did The Doors at the ATC. But I went to um, a red brick. I went to Manchester. And so it sort of felt like, oh, well, you know, you have to have done footlights. You have to do stand-up. It's not a, a job that's open to the likes of me. And when you think about how close to the platonic ideal of a comedy producer i have this accent uh i'm white heterosexual able-bodied <laughs> man who grew up in the south of england you know imagine being none of those things and then thinking whether you'd be welcome yeah. in bbc radio comedy um but then i saw a job advert and thought oh yeah i sort of know what that is i sort of know how a producer what a producer because i've read the goon show script book i've read the hitchhiker script book i listen to a lot of radio comedy and i think the problem solving element of it how do i fix that how do i make that happen what do i need to do the so one of the things i'm proudest of um on a very small micro level um the john finnamore sketch the man who makes the sound of the tardis john did that at a tryout before we recorded it um down at the albany and afterwards he said um I think that's too long. And it's about five minutes long. He said, I think it's too long. And I said, it won't feel it with the music. And John said, what music? And I said, the music I'm going to put in. And it was the first time I'd heard that sketch, but I knew. If you listen to the sketch, there's this sort of newsy panorama drum beat. that comes in between each scene. And then I even, like, I heard it live. Like, as they were doing the montage bits, well, you thought you could produce this series. Um, I saw, and then it comes in, and then it extends, and then it goes, dum dum Right, and I heard all that, and that was, how do you make that sketch not too long? How do you enhance it? 1983. James, now you're 15, your dad and I really think you should work out what you might want to do after school. I have, actually. Oh, good. What are you thinking? I'm going to be the man that makes the noise of the TARDIS. <laughs> No, James, serious. If you don't want to know, don't ask me. <laughs> 1985, King Edward IV Grammar School, Richmond. And I think good producers, you shouldn't be able to tell it's them. Mm. I think a producer's job is to make the creative voice of the show the most them they can be. And Jeffrey working on the sound effect, the fact that they got the Radiophonics Workshop involved. Yeah. Um, the fact that they went, no, we don't want to record with an audience. Every choice... Was every choice was made to enhance the comedy. Taking someone's vision, no matter what they've asked for, and saying, don't worry, we can do that, because actually it's just the sound of uh, some sellotape on a tape head will do that. No matter what ludicrous thing you've asked for, I've got a way of doing this within the budget. And then also saying, when you're about to give up on this thing, 
when you think this thing isn't going to work, I can make it work. Not only do I realise your vision and not get in the way of it, I can also take something you think isn't working and add my little bit of magic to make it so that the thing that you haven't quite got over the line suddenly flies. Yeah. And that's, they're two almost opposite skills and neither of them is visible because all you can see or hear as an audience is that that joke worked. Yeah, good producers like good referees. You shouldn't notice them. Let's just and, let Yeah, them and it must be said, Jeffrey Perkins, who died far too young, was a very, very good producer. He was a facilitator. I remember being told by Graham Linehan that the thing he did on all the Father Ted scripts, Jeffrey would go through the Father Ted scripts, tick the jokes that made him laugh, and then not do anything to those ones. He'd then go through, look which jokes didn't have ticks, and they'd go and fix those. And over that process, eventually, the script was really good. What he didn't do is get bored with the jokes that made him laugh in the room at the first time and then get rid of them. Because actually, it's a really great way of getting something done. Also, do you know it's great for a writer if you're handed back a script which is covered in ticks? Yeah. Instead of handing back a list of notes about things that don't work. I think it's the thing that John Lloyd, who's obviously very associated with uh, Hitchhikers, um, nearly tried to co-write it, got fired. Um <laughs> It was the thing Stephen Fry, I think, said to him. The thing about you, Lloydy, is you never make anything worse. Yeah. <laughs> and at the time, you know, John had said, I think he said in a speech <laughs> I saw him give, he said at the time he thought, oh, well, thanks a fucking lot. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, but that's, that's actually, if you never make anything worse, yes. that's not nothing. Because writing, whatever you do, making comedy is collaborative. You can't do it on your own. People resent and fight and wrestle to make sure they get their vision across. But all you want to be doing is working with as many people as possible who don't make things worse. And something like mm. Hitchhikers, because it isn't just a stand-up and a microphone or footsteps on a gravel drive and two people holding their scripts up and doing Hancock, there are so many people involved in this, separately, often locked in cupboards, unable to see each other, all of whom have conspired to not make this worse. At the end of it, it's one man's vision. But how many people got together to not get in the way? You know, there's a lot of moving parts. Yeah. Mm. There's a, that's a lot of cast. They recorded non-sequentially, so they were just on stage in the day Someone's with got people a coming notebook in. notebook with lots and lots of ticks and crosses in it to say, did we get this bit? Do we? You're hearing how organised he was to get this thing to work. Oh, yeah. Although um, the, one of the two times I met Jeffrey Perkins, um, I think genuinely good people enjoy talking about their fuck-ups. <laughs> way more than mediocre people um, and he told me about the time he was doing a recording of a panel show called Top of the Form which is basically uh, sixth formers doing a quiz contest against each other and he was sitting in his office in Langham Street and he got a phone call saying um, this is such such school in Preston where are you? Went, well the recording's tomorrow I said no we're here and the school had that both the schools were there all the audience were there the parents were there and i think he said he'd done that thing where he'd written like tuesday the 16th when he'd meant wednesday the 16th um so yeah he wasn't always <laughs> he script edited I don't know how much help or how much time there was to suggest yeah. changes to well, Douglas if pages were being handed under toilet doors so I imagine there's not much time yeah. to just go I'll accept this yeah uh, McGiven says they, they were having like photostatted onion skin pages because they were done that's the, how you reproduce <clears> things you just printed them onto basically I imagine carbon paper and he said that one of the biggest challenges was to record on mic 
with paper that was so thin it was just rustling hmm. constantly, trying to not reveal that you'd just been given something that had been typed up really quickly onto very thin paper. I asked Jeff last night, I sent him a text and said, um, we did, we're recording this podcast about hitchhikers. Have you got any juicy tidbits you, I can drop in? And he sent me a message back saying, I'm not telling you a thing until you put a microphone in front of me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're getting Bin this. Yeah, another, he's going to come in and talk about your work. Okay, yeah. Get, <laughs> get, get him to come and talk about the episode of um, Welcome to Our Village he did. He no, plays. he's not talking about anything that he's in. He's going to just be rude about <laughs> everything you've done. He's going to take that Mark Steele series apart. Uh, thank you very much for coming in and bringing us Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Thank Ed you very much for having me. Ed Morris. Thank you.